Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? The following conversation was recorded September 2nd, 2021. My next guest has the lived experience as an adoptee to help the newcomer to the adoption community. His name is David Boyle. And when I first heard him speak to adoptees in adoption land, it was really clear to me that he has a way of making things plain with much clarity to help all of us better understand the importance of connection. In this episode, he will cover the topic of social unity. It is through connection that we lean into more healing within and beyond our community of people affected by a primal wound. David shares a part of his adoption journey and how he has come to understand the importance of knowing versus not knowing the truth. Allow me to introduce you to a person who consistently pays it forward in big ways. He values the significance of everyone, knowing that they are needed, wanted, and have much to offer others when they show up in the community. Whether you're new to this podcast or a faithful listener each week, he, along with myself, welcome you. We hope you know that your being here benefits all of us. David, I'm so glad that you agreed to have this conversation with me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jennifer, and thank you so much for including me. I'm really honored to be a part of what you do. Oh, thank you. The the honor is mine, really, because I have seen you engage with the community through NAAP, the happy hour, and like you're just such a good uh, spokesperson. And I think people really need to hear from you on my podcast. So I, uh, I just appreciate you taking the time out because I know you got a lot on your plate. Well, I'm happy to do it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yes. So I just got back from the conference, the in-person conference, and you were a keynote. I was. Yeah. I and was. I spoke about social unity. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so I do want to talk a little bit about that. I would like to start with part of your adoption journey, wherever you want to start, however much you want to share. Sure, sure. Well, thank you for that opportunity. I, as you know, because you've heard me before, I identify as both an adoptee and a relinquishee because I have come to understand these as separate events that I really need to acknowledge. So when I when I tell my story, not only do I differentiate there, but I've, I've integrated it with some other learnings that I've had in my travels, and I, I hope it comes through to the audience in a way that sits on integrated as well. And, and my adoption story was that I was relinquished at birth in the state of Wisconsin after my first mother or my biological mother had spent the last five months of her pregnancy away from her family, and she was uh, staying at a home for unwed mothers in southeastern Wisconsin. That's because my biological fa- father, as I later come to learn through gaining information, denied fraternity. So she was alone in that, in that time. And after I was born, 
she relinquished me immediately, and I became a ward of the state of Wisconsin for seven days, and then I was adopted into a new family. And, and from their perspective, after years of applications and interviews and waiting, you know, my adopted parents got the call, and I was I was delivered to them within a week of being born. And I was their first child, first child of my adopted parents, like Richard and Joan, and they were biologically unable to have children of their own. So I was welcomed, right? And I was loved, and I was the talk of their family and friends. And as it turns out, they subsequently were able to have a biological daughter two years after I came along, but then they adopted another son five years after that. So I've had experience not only as an adoptee, but also having an adopted brother. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I but like so many adoptees, I had little information from my adopted parents as to my history. My my adoptive mom used to tell me that my birth mother was a redheaded cheerleader from the University of Wisconsin, and that my birth father was a, a student and on the Wisconsin Badgers football team, but I, I, I never, you know, I had no reason to doubt her, but I, I had nothing to back that up. I had no information. But, you know, I, I don't, at the same time, I don't recall a time when, when I didn't know that I was adopted. You know, the, the fact that I was adopted was talked about in the home. And the way my parents characterized it was that I was special and chosen. And that was the narrative I knew. But, but as we know now, you know, knowing that one is adopted versus talking about what it means to be adopted to all involved are distinctly separate things. And we didn't do that. We didn't talk about those things that are important to, to me today. So yeah, I told my friends that from an early age I was adopted, and most of them were surprised. Some of them were shocked, but it wasn't really talked about beyond that. And at the same time, I remember feeling different, which is an experience so many adoptees talk about from a very young age. And I, at the time, I just thought, and my mom thought that I was just being timid and shy, and I was, but that was a symptom. You know, more accurately, I, I felt that I didn't fit anywhere, and that I had no idea what to do in life, though I also felt that other people knew exactly what to do and how to be. And I couldn't attribute this to anything. I never thought it was anything about adoption. I just assumed that's who I was, and there's, there's characterologically something wrong with me, right? I, something was deficient because I couldn't overcome these things and these feelings, and I felt ashamed about it. Yeah, did you, did you look like your family? You know, not at all. I, I, I was European-American, and they were as well, but they had dark hair and dark complexion, and I was uh, I'm very um, lightly complected, and I had red hair and freckles. So, no, there was, there was uh, no no visual resemblance, whatever, uh, between any of us. And, and that, that led to other things, right? My family would go on warm weather vacations in the sun, and they didn't need sunscreen, and then I, I was subject to things. So there, there were things that... that visually differentiated me from them, certainly. I think that's a great question. Yeah, But being ashamed and misunderstood is, is the feeling we, we oftentimes um, encounter as adoptees. But, you know, something happened, and it happened to me at a time it happens to a lot of people, and it was really quite remarkable. And what happened for me is that I, I stumbled upon alcohol in the social setting, I, it, and it became a solution to all those problems of feeling ashamed and isolated and disconnected, you know, because it helped to quiet my brain. It, it provided not only that, that comfort, but it, 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 to me, provided instant connection between people that I didn't feel connected to. So also that I didn't feel like an outsider and that there's something to be ashamed of. I felt like I'm alone. And right. as we know with some people who struggle with alcohol or other addictive disorders, I keep turning to that as a solution more and more over time and it, and it boomeranged. It, 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 it came back and it provided some real problems for me instead of being a solution. And, and ultimately, what I learned later on was that I was self-medicating with alcohol. And we hear this all the time in popular society. People, oh, they're just self-medicating. But it's just really 
a theory uh, of addiction that suggests that people use substances like alcohol, drugs, or other behaviors like eating or shopping or gambling, not to seek pleasure, right? That's but, but, but instead to relieve pain. Right. Medicating those painful symptoms of being uncomfortable in this emotional state that I had, um, given that I just didn't feel like I had a place in this world. So I let numb those, those really active thoughts and emotions, and I continued to do that for too long. I did okay at life. But I, you know, I, I got to college. I had a large social circle. I was well-respected. I was successful in my career. And at 23, I got married, and we started having children. And my wife and I obviously had biological children because it never occurred to me to adopt because we could have biological children. Right. That, was the only that was the only narrative I knew at the time, right? People who couldn't have children were the ones who adopted nobody else. So anyway, my, my view was so limited at the time, but it became apparent that I needed to do some work because shortly after my children were born, my wife asked if it, if, wouldn't it be prudent to obtain some family medical history? Now, just because, David, you don't want to know doesn't mean that it's not important to our children to have that. So mm. I did. I did some research. And I learned that in the state of Wisconsin, adoption records were sealed. And that was enough of a different turn to me. I said, oh, that's it. I guess I can't find out. And I was in the school. I don't want to find out. You know, for the, I, I don't want to know anything about those people. They made a mistake relinquishing me. I don't want, I was angry. I didn't want anything to know. But but that, that, I didn't have that luxury anymore. I, I fast forward some years later to when my children were in my teens. And I experienced a second grand mal seizure. And, and the doctors weren't able to diagnose what caused it. Um, and it was my second grand mal seizure. So there was great concern that I was epileptic or I had a stroke or a brain tumor. And so I had a neurologist who was really encouraging and really gentle with me. And he encouraged me to get some more information. So he helped me to learn that I could petition the state of Wisconsin for non-identifying information from my adoption file. My grandfather had Alzheimer's, but there was nothing that showed um, that I was genetically predisposed to seizures anyway. And ironically, there was no information about my first parents. So I assumed that they must still be alive because there's no information that they're able to share. So again, I reached a dead end and, and I thought I had nothing left to pursue. And I, I just accepted that um, there's a lot about my life and my family history that the these protective adoption laws and time were going to prevent me from understanding. So as you can imagine, you know, my story doesn't end there because we have lots to talk about. Right? What, what it ultimately did is I opened the floodgates and I reached out to the state of Wisconsin to obtain that information because about nine months after my initial contact, I received a second letter from the state of Wisconsin and they said that they had attempted to make contact with my birth mother, but they had learned that she had passed away and she had passed away as a result of alcoholism. And I thought, wow, you know, this is really interesting. Where does it say on the death certificate that someone died of alcoholism? That isn't the case. It's usually heart disease, liver failure, the alcoholism is not a cause of death. It may it may lead to that, but that's not what the cause is. So I thought that's really interesting that they're telling me that. And number two, um, the timing was interesting because my drinking had gotten uh, out of control. Right? I was I was using alcohol excessively and negative consequences were accumulating and I was isolating. And really by the end of by the end of that, I was literally sitting in my basement office drinking and watching the show Intervention, thinking, oh my gosh, those people really have a problem. Not realizing that my problem was was so intense. So So you began to make the connection at some point that the adoption, your adoption journey was connected to the alcoholism? I did. I did. I thought and, and this was the time, right? When I understood that my when I learned that my mother died of alcoholism, I thought, wow, what is that what does that have to do with me? Right. I, I'm, 
what, what, what do I need to know about that? And I started thinking about it. I started getting reflective. Right? What, what is alcohol? How does that play out in my life? And, and is alcoholism something that's real? And is it passed down? Right? Is it is it generationally predisposed and genetically predisposed? So I, I, I did some research. It took me about nine months to do the research. So admittedly, I didn't get this letter and say, uh-oh, I need to stop drinking. But I did some research and I looked into it and I, I knew. I knew at the end of that nine months that I had to acknowledge my my alcoholism. And my mother died of alcoholism was what got me to that point. So it served as a catalyst for me getting sober and healthy. And I did that. I, I checked into a local hospital and did a medical detox and I was transferred to a residential treatment facility. And thankfully, I've stayed healthy since that time. But that's, mm-hmm. that's only part of the process, right? My, my, my life was stabilized from that alcohol addiction, but I was then left to deal with those emotions that I had started self-medicating in my teens, right? And that's right. You know, all in my and adoption. And that's where I really understood over time, oh my gosh, there's something going on here. I don't know what it is, right? Some people call it coming out of the fog. That's not a trend that I like, especially for the newcomer, because it kind of implies that people were in a, in a chosen state, and that's not really what's going on. It was just a perspective that was taught to us by experiences. But, you know, I, I learned that in my case, that abandonment and loss and grief and, and betrayal and trust and these attachment issues and the shame that I talked about before um, were probably playing out. And most of all, that I had identity issues. I, I had these developmental interruptions that were caused maybe by my not being able to attach to my adoptive family, but were certainly additionally caused by my using alcohol as a coping mechanism rather than learning healthy coping mechanisms. There really, de- there, there really are several layers to it. And I'm glad you said that that was just a part of it, the, the sobriety piece. Exactly. exactly. Thanks for saying that, because what happened was, now that I'm sober, I've got these emotions, right? And the pain and the shame came rushing back, and I needed to do something about it. I needed, I needed some relief, so I, I started to connect with the adoption community, and I, I started reading, right? I, I started focusing on my identity, getting to know right, who I was, who, who, who am I really, what do I really know about myself, and it, it was an immense amount of work, and I did a lot of work. I took a lot of tests, right? psychological tests, all kinds of things. I was like reverse engineering myself, right? In the absence of reflective biological relatives, in the, ex- in the absence of information, I had to figure out who I was. And part of that was figuring out from a reverse engineering standpoint what it looked like. So I had to do this to stay healthy and to get healthier, right? Or put it another way, right? I had to keep asking myself the question, what is the truth so far, right? That's why the title of your headline is so right on. What is what is my truth right now? Because I didn't know, right? As an adoptee and as someone who, I guess, suppressed the truth through his alcohol use, I, I didn't know. So that started me on a journey that's uh, been uh, ongoing and um, will continue to be ongoing, I suspect, in my life. And as you said, it, it, it's the different layers. I, I tried to integrate my relinquishment my adoption story into my overall life story and of course that involves an addiction recovery story as well so like we all have to do i started questioning my perceptions and i had to pick up that process as i said of personal development including now learning healthy coping mechanisms for life's challenges from where i left off back in my teens and Wow, I did a lot of reading, like so many of us. You know, the, the, the one book, people ask me this question all the time. What, what, what's the thing that got you started on this journey? And ironically, the book I first read was The Girls Who Went Away mm. uh, by Anne Fisler. Yeah. Because I, I, I opened this up and it really opened my eyes to what my first mother's experience made of that. I think that is like a great place to start uh, because for me as well, reading that book, it's like I got outside of myself because we all know what, yeah, what we're feeling, yeah. you know, and just to 
put myself in the birth mother's position or of what might have been going on, I found it very healing. Exactly. Wow. Well said. That was exactly my experience. It gave it offered me a new perspective and an empathy for my mother that I couldn't possibly have before without trying to envision the context in which she was trying to make these decisions. The I context, yeah. What was it like to be her? Right. I, away from her family for five months. When my mother was in that that home from her mother's, her mother died of a heart attack. I mean, she had to go back home and they had to try to hide her pregnancy. I can't imagine the shame that she was going through it, through all of this process. Oh, wow. And I and I learned a lot in reading and talking with other adoptees from those era that we were much more involved now when we get these things, but at the time the societal pressure was unbelievable. So mm-hmm. that, that, that was the book that really got me going. And, and there's a book called Finding Our Place, uh, 100 Memorable Adoptees, Foster Persons, and Orphanage Alumni. And it also helped me to identify. Right? That allowed me to see, boy, there are all kinds of different people who are adopted and have different life experiences, right? So it, it opened up the, my eyes to the way people worked through and dealt with these things. And like many of us, I've read some of the books um, in The Final Wound by Nancy Gurry, which was great, and Being Adopted, A Lifelong Search for Self by Brzezinski et al. And those things are really helpful, but there are, there are two that I keep going back to. And I, I share this with you, but I also share this with the audience because... People like to hear what, what works, what works, right? We can talk about the problem all the time. We can talk about our struggles. We can talk about the symptoms, but we need a solution. What works? And for me, that the optimism and the hope comes from the book Coming Home to Self, right? It talks about the adopted child growing up, and and that, to me, is, is a go-to. I mean, I keep it next to me. I refer to it all the time, and it has been immensely helpful in my my ability to find that truth that you talked about and that I talk about. The other mm-hmm. one is a book called Healing Developmental Trauma by Heller and Lapierre. It talks about how we can take proactive steps and take control of our coming out of the fog of the healing. And in this day and age, we are really fortunate because there are podcasts and blogs and support groups and organizations and Facebook groups that are linking us together and conferences, right? So it's not just about defining the problem and sharing information. It's where we find support and validation and we share solutions to challenges. Yes. Um, Yeah, and what's so good about having so many groups, so many resources, is adoptees can find something that really resonates, what group really fits for them. And, um, yeah, you just want to keep looking for what, what feels good. And, and so I know you facilitate groups. Tell me, what, what do you facilitate, I think, on Facebook? What group is sure, that? Sure, I do. You know, we have a group that's sponsored by the National Association of Adoptees and Parents. It's called Adopting Paths to Recovery. And it's a group for anyone seeking recovery from addictive behaviors, addictive substances, addictive relationships. And we gather uh, every other week and uh, we meet for an hour formally. And then we do a half an hour informally afterwards because some people are sometimes intimidated by by that format. And it's facilitated by myself and another uh, addiction professional who is an adoptee and has had that experience as well. And ultimately, we, we, we share information, but we also share the hope that can be found in moving beyond these things and healing from these things and finding recovery, right? It's really about narrative therapy. It's about doing what you just offered me a chance to do here, about telling our stories, right? Re- recovery is, is a term that was co-opted by the addiction world, but it's, it, I think it applies to all of us because recovery is actually a change in self-concept and self-narrative. Whatever one is trying to recover from, and that's what we do in this podcast. That's what we do in the, the adoption has to recovery group, and that's what we do in the adoption community. And it's so important. It's right. so important that we're able to do this. So you come in contact with 
the newcomer quite often, I'm sure. And so I did want to spend some time talking about that because that's really been on my heart lately. There are adoptees coming to the community left and right for the first time. First mm-hmm. time being in the same space with another adoptee. I've, I've been hearing that over and over again. And I'm talking, mm-hmm. they're like 40, 50, 60 years old because of DNA yeah. test results. They're learning they were adopted. So the LDAs are coming to the community. And and so what would you like to share about the newcomer and how important that person is when they first come Wow. Wow. Thank you for that opportunity. Uh, now you're talking my language. <laughs> ultimately, ultimately that, that message is really simple. And that message is welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. You're appreciated here. You belong here. You, know, you will find safety and support here. Right? So, you know, we come to this, we know that people in the adoption community are immensely complex, yet the one thing we all have in common, in addition to having those experiences that we had, like abandonment and loss and grief and trust and attachment issues and shame, Identity issues is that what we all had in common that we were all new arrivals to this community at one time. And I think it's essential that we never forget that, right? right. So to me, that new arrival or the newcomer is the most important person in the community, whoever they are, because the community is just not only to share information, which we all have, but also to ensure that all community members hear messages of hope, right? Especially the new arrival. They're the ones in need of the hope the most. So so that message to them is, you know, you enter the community where understanding and emotional support is shared. It's shared with others that have experienced with it. And these others might be able to help you even where the most helpful others in your life may fall short, right? So you, you've entered this community where we're all experts. And you've heard me refer to this because you heard me speak about this last week. It's we're all experts by virtue, virtue of experience. Mm-hmm. And we're a community of experts by virtue of experience sharing with other experts by virtue of experience. So... The neat part about all of this is that newcomers are experts too, they're experts on their own lives. And one of the most rewarding aspects of joining the adoption community is that everybody has a chance to offer help and to offer their narratives. And and helping others provides a sense of belonging and purpose that boosts our self-esteem and it teaches us to create stronger interpersonal bonds and friendships. And I I, I don't want to be ignorant about this. I know it's difficult for those of us who have had trust and attachment issues to walk into a community and feel like we belong it takes some work and it takes some trust. And sometimes it may take several tries before we feel safe and comfortable. But the fact of the matter is, is we in the adoption community are incredibly brave and we are extraordinarily resourceful people. We are the very experts on connection and healing. And we can create it when necessary and we do all the time. And to me, this is an immensely empowering concept, right? We, we are the history in the making simply by participating in the adoption community and and helping one another. And just as you said a moment ago, when we need other types of help, we create it. We drill down, we find a safer place with people with different things in common, and we work together to, to support each other. And to me, that's the message. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for allowing me the chance to, to, to welcome new arrivals and newcomers to our community. Thank you. for That was beautifully stated. My thing with the newcomer, and you, you just said it, we all have something to offer. Like my big wish is newcomers know that they bring so much value by, by being there, even if they're just mm-hmm. coming, because we all have something to give. And, and it's, um, it's a give and take. And we know it's emotional labor to share our stories and to be public and to be honest within the community. And so that work, it's rewarding, and that's why we do it. But it, it's like we, I know I heal in the sharing and also the the listener 
has the opportunity to do some healing too. So I, I know that the introspection that you did in your own life when you came to understand different things that were in your, your, mm-hmm. the DNA, you, you really went in. Like to me, introspective work can be some of the hardest work we do. <laughs> yeah, just really mm-hmm. going like, who am I really kind of work. And doing that allowed you to be as powerful as you are. Like when you speak and you share and you invite, when I see you on Zoom and virtual spaces, I mean, I just light up because I'm learning. I've learned so much from you this year because I have been on several uh, happy hours with um, NAAP. And Mm -hmm. each time you talk about the work you do, I'm like, that is so needed. And I know there are people that are joining that Facebook group, they've told me, who are brand new to the community. And it's been most helpful to them in just this short period of time, like just this year. Oh, I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah. Thank you so kindly. That's why we give back. That's why we. That's why I volunteer. That's why I. I am part of the community, right? And and you, you hit the nail on the head, right? It, this is not easy work, and I can't say it was linear. Right? I didn't just jump in with both feet and say, "Let's go," and never take a breath. Right? Sometimes we need to take a breath. Sometimes we need to, to pause. Right? Sometimes we need to take that information and set it aside for a little while and process it. Right? It's not. It's not always straightforward, but but it can be done. And I I did it literally because existentially, I think I needed to to survive. I needed to find out who I was. I, I needed to do that. And and what you said was really important. You know, what I've learned about my biological family and my heritage and the context surrounding that time is, is essential for me. And, and what I can tell you is that knowing, right, knowing, even though that the facts are sometimes heartbreaking, and in my case they are, in many cases, knowing is infinitely better than not knowing or yes. wondering or fantasizing or worrying and, and, and at the same time, I have to accept that there are lots of things I will never know. There's information that has been lost and that I will never find it. And um, I have to deal with it. So processing things like my mother dying at age 56 and this terrible alcoholic death in a homeless shelter are, are part of my story. But I, I, I needed to learn that. And I was able to learn something. She actually had five children after. One had passed away as an infant, but four others um, are still around. And, of course, addiction and other mental health disorders have affected that family and immense ways, but I've had ongoing relationships with two of my half-sisters. I don't call it being in reunion because I never met my parents. They had both passed by the time I started searching, but I but I have been unified, united with, with these people. So I have relationships with a couple half-sisters. I learned that my father died at age 46 of a brain tumor. He had two children after me, and he struggled with alcohol use, but I, I met my half-brother, and when we met our families, we're going relationships. I met my father's sister. And I have a great relationship with her, and over time, they provided to me uh, lots of information. And you know, ultimately, you know, I, I want to be honest here. It, it's not, not only was it not linear, but it takes a long time to process. It only took years for me to develop this cohesive narrative to be able to talk about it and turn it into the memoir that I wrote. It, just, it didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of time, and I continue to do that work. I said, well, how do you do that? Well, it, it, it's not always easy. It's not always straightforward. It doesn't have easy answers, but it's about working to get curious and exploring and experimenting in safe environments like the community you asked about a moment ago, and then taking action to see what works and what doesn't work, just to, so that we know our true selves, right? We're, we're complex and we're complicated people, so... We, we have to keep kind of figuring this out. And I, for me, I take an inventory. Now, what do I know about myself today? I keep it in my phone. Who am I? I literally have a list of the notes in my phone that I add to and take away from as I learn more things about myself. Oh, I like, I like that. I like that idea. 
you know, it, it saved me. What, what, at times where I'm trying to figure out why am I being overly emotional or why am I being triggered or why am I being emotional about that, I go back and say, okay, this is who you are, David. You are, you are these people. Right? This is what you've learned about yourself. This should not come as a surprise over time after you've experienced this, and you can deal with this, right? You can deal with this because you are resilient. Right. People, it's an open answer to your question. Newcomers are resilient. They made the adopted community. That's right. We've all made it there, right? Yes. This is what we're sharing ultimately. And we, we're, what we're doing is we're opening ourselves up to some select trusted others, and we ask them not only to affirm our experiences and check our perceptions, but help us understand reality right, as it is. And that's so Oh, fun. that was that was really good, David. And our stories are very similar. I, I too found graves. And one of the things that struck me the most, because my perf- mother and father had been deceased many years before I searched. And uh, mm. so I like you, I'm learning from other people in the family. I was reunited with with family members, extended family members who could tell me the stories and there are things that I won't ever know but I do remember being struck by the fact that that both of my parents died so early you know my mother at 49 and and really a lot of people uh, in my family had passed so Mm. I I just think that when we learn these things because like you I would rather know than not know it does mm-hmm. put things in a different perspective because when I had my 50th birthday which was seven years ago I remember just feeling kind of funny, you know, like, like, mm-hmm. yeah, because I knew this history. By then, I knew things about the um, lack of longevity, we'll say, uh, with my mm-hmm. birth family. And so now I'm kind of doing things a little different, you know, being a little bit intentional because mm-hmm. I, I would like to stick around. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think it's important to know. Uh, and, and all of it isn't not isn't going to be pretty. It can be very useful. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, my, if I could describe that in one line, I, I describe this, and I remind myself of this every day: is that to stay healthy, I need to ultimately pursue reality and relentlessly pursue reality. I have mm. to look for the truth, right? Yeah. Again, I refer to your memo. I have to look for the truth, right? Because my perceptions over time have not always been healthy. And that's ultimately what trauma can be about, right? It changes our perceptions. It makes life unsafe for us. It makes relationships unsafe for us. And that may be fine for the time. We needed to survive. We needed those coping mechanisms. But again, just like my drinking, those protective coping mechanisms are no longer working for me. So I need to look at reality. Is is my perception of the world what it really is? And are there people that I can invite into my life who I trust and feel safe with? Who can help me to examine that? And for me, it, 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 that, that's the hope, right? That's the hope that we talked about with the new arrival and the newcomer that we can offer. There are other perspectives out there. There are other ways of viewing things. There are other ways that we can view ourselves and as a result, our relationship with others and the world and continue going forward. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. You've covered, you covered so much here. Now, you wrote a book. I did. I did. I, I wrote a memoir that was ultimately the, you know, I, I didn't set out to write a memoir. I was just trying to chronicle my adoption story. And as I said, really integrate it into the rest of my life. So I just started journaling. Right? I started writing things and started trying to figure out what my perceptions were then and what, what the truth was now and, and who I was now. And that morphed into a 300-page memoir entitled Parallel Universe is the story of rebirth, and it ultimately describes my adoption experience, but it also focuses on that intersection that we talked about between 
my addiction to alcohol and my adoption experiences. And, you know, ironically, I wrote the book to, well, I, I wrote the, the, the narrative because I know that narrative therapy is incredibly important. Right? There's lots of science that shows that when we can get clear about these things, we have a much better chance of leading a better adjusted life. And additionally, we have a much better chance of passing that on to our children, offering them the opportunity to do that. So I, I, I did that, but at the same time, I thought I was going to say, Practical. I thought I was just writing to adoptees, and I've heard from lots of adoptees who've read my memoir and have really related to it, and we've had great conversations about it, and they were thankful for it. But surprisingly, I heard from just as many adopted parents and adopted mothers oh, who would great. say, and I, and I paraphrase, I, 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 yeah, it is, it is amazing to me. And ultimately, I, I, they didn't all say the same thing, but if I could characterize it in one statement, it was, David, we read your book. It put into words some things that we've experienced that witnessed in our child. Oh my goodness. Right. So so now they're getting they too are getting a new perspective. They're getting a new understanding or perhaps understanding the motivation or they're understanding the limits, right? Or those developmental interruptions that might have transpired with someone that they love and they're trying to raise and have a relationship with. So I was blown out of the water when adopted parents came to me. Of course I've heard from birth mothers as well. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it's been an unbelievable, unbelievably great experience and, and um, both professionally and personally, right? It's kind of directed my Actions going forward, right? It, it's, it has become my mission in life professionally to serve individuals with developmental interruptions. The very people we're talking about, the traumatized individuals, relinquishes, adoptees, orphans, foster persons, and people with substance use and mental health disorders, right? So um, that, that's what I, that, what I hope to do. Right? And I work with individuals experiencing these things. And I get to talk to individuals and community who are experiencing these things. And it's, it's just so important for us to have these conversations because if we don't know what we're up against, we can't really design solutions to, to, to overcome those goals, right? We have to set a goal to overcome, and we do that. But personally, it's been so rewarding, too. I mean, what's been most rewarding about being in the community, as we said, is the connection and that healthy connection. And when I talked about at the conference, the restorative powers of that healthy connection are, are the healing, right? Yes, um, and I'm going to definitely include your book title in the uh, show notes. And well, I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I want everybody to know about your book. And I think a really good place for us to move to is you speaking at the conference. Like, I was so looking forward to meeting you in person, but I understood that you, you know, would be virtual and you gave a just wonderful presentation. Can you share a little bit about what you talked about? Absolutely. So I, I spoke about the, uh, my um, keynote was entitled Social Unity, the Restorative Powers of Community Support Systems. And ultimately, it was about what we just talked about. It's about the importance of connection in our adoption community. Yes, it's important to disseminate information, but it's important to find that healthy connection. And I, I talked about different ways that we're able to do that, how that might have changed a little bit from where we might have been in smaller geographic pockets pockets of adoptees, right? Adoptees in the United States, us adoptees represent about 2% of the population, which means there might not be a local grassroots on the ground organization that we can go to. So um, actually COVID and the internet have made opportunities to connect um, just just phenomenally um, robust um, since we're able to get together online. And I talked about the importance of doing that, right? Healing in, in community 
is immensely important, right? We, we, we were traumatized in our relationships, right? We were traumatized and as a result, we struggle with trust and detachment and other, other types of issues. The, the anecdote to that is healing in community, right? There's an old, there's an old adage in, in the addiction recovery community, and it was started by an author by the name of Johan Hari, who talked about this. He said that the, um, the anecdote to uh, addiction is not sobriety. The antidote to addiction is connection. And it's a very simplistic statement, but it, it rings really true. And don't think, I don't understand how difficult this is for people in the adoption community who have had fractured relationships and developmental interruptions who prevent this. Walking into a support group, whether it's virtual or not, is really difficult. Mm-hmm. Right? And again, this goes back to the newcomers. That's why the newcomer is the most important person in the room. We, we have to be safe. When I run my Adopted past recovery meeting, we talk about safety all the time and how essential it is to be safety and what community support groups and the unity that they offer restore us, right? They restore us and they offer us that resilience to continue to do the work because ultimately we all know the work. We, we've heard testimony time and time again. If you delve into this, if you do this examination, if you seek yourself and do all, it pays off in a big way, but it's really difficult to do that when someone feels shameful or uncomfortable in trying to connect. So ultimately, we talked about this restorative uh, powers of community support systems, the benefits of being in support groups and being a part of the adoption community. And um, ultimately, the, the, the keynote was designed for all of our community, but as you can imagine, it was directed at the newcomer. And what I've heard since that time is that it was it was so powerfully received by the community and especially people who are new to our conference in the community that I've been asked to turn it into a white paper. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn it into a paper. I'm going to offer it for free to the community. It could, I hope, I hope it empowers others to seek the same solution that you and I have found by being at the I remember your presentation, and I like these three questions that we should ask ourselves. Do I have enough relationships? Do I need new ones? And, and how can I improve a sense of belonging? Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the connecting is when the healing begins, as you said. And you said, and I, I so totally agree, adoptees have a difficulty with connection. Yeah, we, yeah, just it's the way it kind of is. But like coming to the, coming to the community is, is where you start to get better. Yeah, and that's really, that's the key. And back to the newcomer, and I think why it's been on my my mind and and heart uh, for the last several months is that I have to remember what it felt like to be a newcomer myself. So Mm -hmm. once I started to do that, I remember not knowing the language. And, like, everything was, it was just so much that I was absorbing and you're just learning. You're just, it's like brand new. And so when you've been there mm-hmm. for a while, you may tend to, I know I tend to forget what that felt like. But the minute I think about what it felt like, I'm like, oh yeah, the newcomer is so important. Like, cause some people mm-hmm. can really put on like, everything's okay. But I remember when I was a newcomer, everything wasn't okay. You know, I didn't have my original right. birth certificate. I didn't know tons of of things and and then I'm getting all this information from different places and trying to sort it out so I may have looked okay mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. yeah I I'm glad that you totally get the newcomer and I want to be that way I want to I want to remember that and when I think of, mm-hmm. yeah when I think of people um, being connected for so long in the community I know that burnout 
that can surface, that can happen. And so I'm always Absolutely. asking, like, what are your ideas? Because we don't want to get burned out. Right, right. Well, there, there are any number of approaches, and I would suggest that. And I, and I have to practice these every day, right? I think one of the most empowering things for me is being able to say, I don't know, or um, I need some help with this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we live in a society in which we, we look at social media, or we look at television, or listen to radio, or even, or even other forms of media, and we're told, you have to figure out what your problem is because we've got the solution for it. So they tell you, here's your problem. Here's the solution. Just send us some money and we'll fix this thing. We'll fix it right away. And that's not the way that life works, right? That's not the way that life works. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And ultimately, in the adopted community, that's often our story. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know that the experience we had at birth or early in our lives may be holding us back when we're 61 years old. We might not get that. So walking into a community and being able to say, I don't know, or can you help me to understand this, or can you help me to process this, is a really powerful tool for working with that burnout when we just put our hands in the grindstone and we've read 30 books and we've taken all these courses and we just can't put our hands on it. Sometimes just saying, oh, help me out here, is it, a really way of reducing burnout. And for me, I, I practice that all the time. In addition, I really practice a philosophy that I latched into a few years ago. It is called Blue Mind. And Blue Mind is actually a science, and it's, it's a science that describes that kind of, uh, calm mind state that comes from being near or on or in or exposed to the water. And that can be in person, that can be through guided meditations, or it could be through uh, any number of apps, right? But that's where I find my solace from everyday life, is pursuing opportunities to be connected with the water. And I've, I've studied this, and I've written about it, I've written a paper titled Blue Mind and Relinquishies. I've written a paper called Blue Mind and Addiction. It's really important. So ultimately, the short version is that, you know, healing from this, this trauma or relinquished trauma can be done through applying this calming concept, teaching people to seek out proximity of bodies and water that encourages them to spend time in quiet reflection, right? Feeling connected to something, right? Using what's available. Go to the pool, go to the aquarium, find some pictures, but help help try to form a sense of attachment to that experience, right? And and that helps to create this inner world that fosters mindfulness and fosters calm, right? We're not being inundated with this active brain that all of us have, right? And ultimately what is it does is it helps us not only with that burnout, but it helps us develop a more solid concept of self, which you and I talked about at great length here. Who am I? What is the truth, right? And and what what we basically do is we differentiate ourselves from others by being a part of something, by connecting with something outside of ourselves, right? And Mm -hmm. we're seeing life and life's lessons that can be offered in a a quiet state. So that that, that place of blue mind, and by the way, that was named after a book that was was written by uh, Dr. Jay Nichols, and it's been published in, I don't remember the last how 40 different languages worldwide. It's, it's found such use in the world that people can relate to this. It's something that we all have. Whether it be taking a shower or being reverent, it helps us to regroup, to be reflective, to relax, and reflect mindfully on what's important and who we are, and more specifically, what anchors us, right? What anchors us. So even in the middle of winter, I live in a part of the country where the lake that I live on freezes, even in the winter, I can find this blue mind because it's spectacular, beautiful. The ice makes cracking sounds. And our bubbles, I mean, there's just any number of ways to do this. So I literally, Jennifer, have to take time and, and reflect on 
what is my relationship to the world? And I do that through connecting to the water. And that for me helps with burnout. And additionally, I, I have to open myself up to the community of individuals that I feel safe with. Those people in my life, in the adoption community, who I've said, not only do I want your support, but I want you to hold me accountable, right? If you see me looking a little burned out or looking frazzled, ask me about it. Mm. Call me on it. Hey, David, I noticed, I noticed that you're a little rushed today. Is everything okay? And mean it, right? It's not like we're passing people in the hall saying, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Right? And we don't really want an answer. But talking to people who really want that answer and who can help us to figure out that answer is really important. I like so that. That's a lot of what I do. Yes, because like I feel like I could call you if I was feeling some way. Absolutely. I feel like Absolutely. I could call you and I would get relief. I would feel like, okay, yeah, I can keep going. A couple of other people that are coming to mind now. And I know when I was at the National Association of Adoptees and Parents in-person conference, like that rejuvenated me because, you know, with COVID and, and all of that, I have not been moving around really anywhere, you know. But to have the right. opportunity right. to go, I just remember thinking I needed this because mm-hmm. I don't want to get burned out. And probably like you, I, I'm in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. I'm in it mm-hmm. to serve the community from here on out. But I do know, just like anybody else, I can get weary, you know. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, you got to know who you can reach out to and um, and you'll be okay. Because, you know, members mm-hmm. of the adoption community will get mm-hmm. attacked <laughs> for something we sure. didn't get quite right in someone else's opinion or, you know, we mm-hmm. could have done better. And, and, and sometimes it can really sting. I see that going on right now, you know, in different circles. I've seen it through the years. I was talking to another adoptee. We've seen it happen. You know, it's like these things just happen. We want to stay the course. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. And, and, and again, it goes back to that safety, right? I mean, we have, we have lots of people in our life who love us and they support us as best they can, but they are not always prepared to deal with where we're at, right? So if someone asks us the question, how are you? And we tell, really tell them, they may not be prepared to deal with it. They may not know where to go with it. They may not be able to process it, right? So so finding someone who's safe or a community that's safe in the adoption community, and, and you can use the example, if you called me, you feel like you talk to me. If, Jennifer, if you called me, I would ask you how you are, and I would really want to know. Mm-hmm. I want to know the answer because I'm not afraid of the answer. Right. I, I, I've probably been there in many ways in terms of coping, getting out and making that connection and doing it face-to-face when we can and when we feel safe to do so is all part of that, right? Imagine going, I, I remember going to a doctor, my doctor, a young adult, it asked all the family medical questions and I'd say, boy, I just don't know the answer to that, I was adopted. And there was crickets, right? There, there was silence in the room, the doctor right. was not trained <laughs> on how to ask the next question. Yeah. All he had to ask was is, how do you feel about that? Or is there something we can do about that? I that would have been a great answer. But, but again, that's why we do what we do. That's why we, we talk about this in community. We're trying to get others to understand what's important to us. So seeking someone who's not afraid to ask the question, how are you? And once I, I, an honest answer is exactly what helps us to, to, to not only become healthy, but to avoid that burnout and avoid the stress that we have to initially. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned the water, too. Because, like, I walk... In the mornings, in the woods, there's a river that runs, and I'm always looking and watching the water. And yeah, and there's a nearby lake, and and I think there's something just healing about being in nature. I know it just, I feel rejuvenated 
by by going out there, being out there. Right, right, excellent. Well, it's good that you know that about yourself, that you've taken the time to realize that. And of course, in, in contemplation or meditation or reflection, you know that you would find some strength there. And sometimes that's enough, right? How do you avoid burnout? Well, you have, you have some tools to go to. Mm-hmm. You might not have to use them all the time, but knowing that you have them can oftentimes get you through difficult or get me, um, speaking from my own experience as well, through difficult situations. Yeah, you do have to know your tools. Being connected to the adoption community has given me quite a few tools in my box. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Absolutely. is there anything Absolutely. I didn't ask you that you want to leave the um, community with, specifically adoptees? Boy, you know, um, there's so much we can always talk about, and I hope we have an opportunity to continue this both offline and online sometime. Oh, I do. I hope you come back, yes. I really appreciate that. But, you know, the the ultimate message you already asked me about, the ultimate message that I want the world to hear is that there is a place for you. It's safe here. We understand. We validate. We understand what's going on in your relationships. Please come spend time with us. We can learn from you, and hopefully you can gain something from us. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me, David. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jennifer. It was my pleasure and it was uh, my honor to speak with you as well. David's introspective ability in the beginning of his journey to unpack his adoption story played a major role in his beautiful evolution as an adoptee. I like how he got outside of himself by reading The Girls Who Went Away by Ann Fessler and was able to have compassion for his birth mother. When David quotes, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, the opposite of addiction is connection, quote unquote. I felt that. By nature of being human, it is natural to want connection with people. However, it can be quite challenging for adoptees to genuinely connect with others. We can and do find the tools to develop and sustain healthy relationships. David shared a bit about what recovery looks like for him, and I believe his message for all of us is about social recovery. We might empower ourselves by asking the questions about how connected are we with others and how to best improve those relationships. Social unity within the adoption community is the ideal and so possible when we each give one another grace. We may disagree or fail to understand one another at times, But staying focused on the long-term goal of connection will allow us to think twice about canceling someone or a group when differences arise. If you are struggling with an addiction of any kind, it is my belief that a group David facilitates might be a good place to start or continue a journey of recovery. He brings a wealth of information offered from programs equipped to deal with substance abuse. Check out the show notes for his authored book, Parallel Universes, The Story of Rebirth. Thank you, David, for having a conversation with me in the hopes that those tuning in will embrace connection over isolation, unity instead of discord, and recovery in lieu of addiction. Let us remember that there is power in social unity so we can all move in the direction of healing from a trauma. Remember to always look at the show notes of each episode for more information about our guest. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, 
leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word. Hashtag AdoptDLand. Thank you for being here.